Welcome to a new episode of How I Became, the podcast where I talk with individuals to reveal the valuable lessons they've learned while navigating their way through life. Okay, so I'm talking with Corby Mitleid, and Corby's background is she's an author of several books, but primarily what I wanted to talk with you about, Corby, was when we... When I saw your introduction and said you were a psychic and then I started reading the background of your books and everything, the one thing that struck out to me was that it sounded so different from what I expect to hear from a psychic. And so I want to bridge that gap, but I kind of want to start here. Um, Let's go back to 16-year-old Corby. Who did she want to become? Well, at that point, she wanted to become an actress. Um, She was, you know, everybody in high school had that one kid that everybody knew was going to do drama. And so straight plays was always me. Annie Sullivan and the Miracle Worker, Mrs. Frank and Diary of Anne Frank, Mrs. Gibbs in Our Town. Um, But at that time, remember, we were still all hippies. Okay? Fringe jacket, elephant bell bottoms, and you got a debt. So it was actually when I was 18 that I was working part-time at Spencer Gibbs. That was 1973. Yes. And that was the year that Live and Let Die came out with Jane Seymour as Solitaire, the reader. So Spencer Gibbs had the James Bond 007 tarot deck and I bought it. There you go. And I was fascinated by the cards. Loved the stories that they told. So I... You know, some people picked up the decks and five years later had moved on to roller skates and disco balls. I continued with the cards. Now, here's the, I guess the question is, is that the cards, how do you, we, when we talk about getting into the cards, how does that work? How do you get into them and how do they work? I don't even know how the cards work, actually. All right. The deck that most people know is called a tarot deck. And it's very specific. It's got 78 cards, 22 majors, four suits. Um, Interestingly enough, if you look at a standard uh, playing card deck today, you've got the same suits. Um, Tarot or wands, uh, normal deck is clubs and so on. But the thing is, when you learn the deck well, You learn the correspondences, you learn how one follows the other and tells stories. And while I wanted to be an actress, I have always been a writer. And that comes from my father. Um, He was, he was brilliant. He was a fabulous doctor, but he was also quite a poet. And so he and I, I very often say for both of us, words were our drug of choice. So instead of just looking at a card and saying, this is the meaning that it says in the book, I was able to look at a card, pull out the allegory and tell the story that way, which made more sense to people. Just an example of a card now. There is a card called the Eight of Cups. And the Eight of Cups, the standard meaning is... um, leaving things behind and going for something that suits you better. But if you carefully look at the card, it's got eight cups 
and a man is walking away in a red cloak leading on a staff and it looks like a really rough landscape. So the way I would explain it to people is I would say the beer is flat, the wine is sour, the water is dirty. There is no more nourishment in those cups. So the man dons the cloak of his passion, red being passion, leans on the staff of his will. This is what I will do. And he recognizes that the road ahead looks pretty bad, but what he wants is on the other side. So he's leaving everything behind that no longer works for him. Mm-hmm. So when you draw a picture like that of cards and tarot or any of your Oracle decks, then you can explain them in a way that people will remember. We are storytellers. Humans are storytellers. Why were 16th century bards so treasured? Because for people who couldn't read and write, they were the history. They were the legends. So people are trained to listen to stories. And I make stories as I read the cards. Okay. Now, how do the... I guess the, the question here, when you, as you were going through this, were there other, were you being pulled in different directions to say, okay, I'm going to stick with the cards, but I'm going, but the traditional path through life is still calling, right? Because oh, everyone sure. has that. Um, and you said your father is a doctor. Was. So I was a doctor. Was, yes. So I imagine there's some pull in in with that. Was there any ever pull from Ooh. the father to say, hey, this is what you should do? Well, yes, but not medicine. He thought I should be a lawyer. I hate lawyers. The whole thing is everybody in my family was medicine. Dad was a cardiologist. Mom was an RN. My brother is pediatric pulmonology. I could have stood on the dining room table and recited Shakespeare and tap danced and nobody would have seen. I was always the rebel. I was always the one they figured was going to be a failure. They loved me, but she'll never get it right. Mm. Um, because I kept trying to find my own road, which was not theirs. So I did make a lot of missteps and I did things that they thought was a waste, but I knew that I was not them. So I had a very checkered career between uh, when I left college and we'll say 9-11 because that's when things really moved. Actress, author, inspirational speaker, legal assistant, writer for a graphic novel series called ElfQuest for 10 years. And that's, it's a very well-known graphic novel series. Video producer, um, executive recruiter for engineering and manufacturing. I was never out of work. I was always able to do the somersault and stick mm-hmm. and make a landing. But the cards were always part of where I wanted to go. And that goes back to when I was nine. I read a book called The Witch Family by Eleanor Estes, you know, kid's book. But I always thought, good, there's magic in the world. I want to go find it. And that was always part of who I was. And that's why the cards stuck with me. And I read for friends for 20 years, making sure that I could keep my ego on the shelf and make the messages very clear. That's why all of a sudden in 1994, I found I could talk to hand, you know, talk to dead people with no training and do hands-on healing. And that's when I hung up my shingle part-time. But I was still doing quote unquote normal work because I didn't think I could make a living at it. The Hmm. big change was 9-11. 9-11. And in fact, 
with as we're doing this podcast, uh, mm -hmm. today is the twelfth. Um, yep. What what about that moment, that inflection point? Because I'm hearing two inflection points. I love the statement that you just said. There is magic in the world, and I want to go find it. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that if most people were to actually take up that moniker and that magic being whatever it is that they deem something so inspiring that they just need to go find it, I believe a lot of times you will find people not being in careers at 45 years old that they hate because they've decided that whatever my magic is, I want to go pursue that. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But uh, I, I believe most people have gotten to the point that we're just simply practical and we do the practical thing because we have a mortgage and kids to raise. Oh, please. If you knew, um, a lot of the women that I read are empty nesters. They're in their 40s, 50s, 60s. They don't know what they want. They just know they're not happy. They know what they don't want. And I tell them, it is because of the conditioning that we got. And the example I use, again, storytelling, you're four. You're a little girl, you're four. There's a plate of cookies. You know there's more cookie in the big cookie than the little cookie. So you reach for the big cookie and your mother slaps your hand and says, you're selfish. So you're not even going to get the cookie. And she takes what you want and she gives it to your little brother who eats it at you. And then she compounds it by saying, besides, girls who eat cookies get fat. Nobody likes a fat girl. Do you really want that cookie? And with that kind of nonsense, my generation, and probably the one right after me, was conditioned to know subliminally, if we want anything, we're wrong, we're bad, we'll be punished, and we'll have to watch somebody get it. So we were conditioned never to want for ourselves, but always do what other people wanted. They deserved more than we do. And for me to help women get out of that idea, to, that they're allowed to want, they're allowed to change, they are allowed to do for themselves first. That's that's pastoral work, let me tell you. I can imagine. I was just read I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast and he did a three-part series on the Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues he had with the Little Mermaid is that the voice area uh, her voice being taken away and the biggest problem he had was that how she got her voice back, that mm -hmm. it was not anything she did. She was passive in the entire scenario and getting her voice back. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where he had someone rewrite the story where, where here we, here we go that the little mermaid actually does something is in charge has agency of her life that gets her voice back and not mm -hmm. just being a passive a passenger in her own life and i think about that mm -hmm. because a lot of times girls are taught to lose their voice at a very mm -hmm. early age uh, yes. second grade third grade raise your hand know the boys how boys and girls are in the classrooms mm -hmm. and you know, then you get to the point that you don't want to make boys feel like they're dumb. Um, you know, and, they're, and the voice of how you dress. 
Mm-hmm. Girls have to be careful that they don't incite the boys. Right. Boys are never told, watch it. You have a responsibility too. So if you want to dress a certain way, your voice is taken away from you that way too. Mm. So the question then is 9-11, I want to go back to that because that's an inflection point. What happened that turned, I I know the scenario around it, but for you, what what was it? My father had died about a week before. Um, And I had just moved in with my fiance, now husband, Carl. And as we watched the towers burn, I just looked at him and said, I've got to do the psychic work full time. People need to know there are other answers out there. And he looks at me and he says, I believe in you. Go do it. So for a year, I still worked 70 hours a week as an executive recruiter and did the psychic work evenings and weekends to make sure I could make a living at it. Any money I made poured back into it like proper business. So you get your stuff. And in 2002, I closed the door on corporate anything, became an absolute entrepreneur, lived my truth in the world. And that has been 20 years. And I work six days a week, 14 hours a day. I read about a thousand people a year and I get to get up in the morning. I don't have to get up in the morning. That's key. What were the... In dealing with uh, the people who, because I, I can imagine a lot of us had questions uh, at that point, mm-hmm. but for the people who were experiencing loss, what were some of the things that you found yourself helping them with in navigating that loss? Like the answers, what were some of the questions they were having And where were some of the answers leading them? Believe it or not, it wasn't, I want to talk to my dead husband. I mean, there are a lot of mediums out there. I'm I'm a good one, but it's not my forte. What I do is teach people how to live the examined life. This horrible thing has happened. Got to accept it. How do I learn from it? With me, the secondary answer is how do I teach with it? And then how to go on. Now, you know, you say that um, I'm probably, or or you have an idea of what a psychic is. Psychics, good ones, are not Madame Hoo-Ha and Swami Swalanda, fortune-telling. My whole point is I'm an intuitive counselor. If Betsy comes to me and says, I need to know about John, does he love me? I'm not going to say yes or no. There'll be a card for her, a card for John. Card for the relationship as it stands, what she needs to know and best possible outcome. If I can see the underlying karma with it, I'll tell her that too. If she still goes, I don't know what to do, then it's three threes. Three cards for status quo. She does nothing. She just kind of bumbles along. Three cards for what I call the come to Jesus meeting. Draws a line in the sand, heavy counseling. Three cards for hostile abide-by. It's been nice, but I'm gone. Now, everybody's got free will. I will not take that from her. I will tell her exactly what I see. And usually it's detailed, but then I zip it and she must make the decision. The only time that I break that rule with something like this is if she tells me that she's abused, battered, then the Reverend Collar goes on 
the psychic hat comes off and I talk to her about getting out of that situation. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it, she must make that decision herself because when you just go to a psychic wanting them to always tell you what to do, that means you're turning your free will over to them. And that sets you up for the fakes that go, oh, you have a family curse. How many in your family? Four, you have dog. $50 every family member, 25 for dog, we fix. Forget mm. it. I respect <laughs> my clients' brains a lot more than that. And that is why I don't mind if a client only comes to me once. Yeah, sure, I have repeats. But if I can give you what you need to move on in your life with one session, great. People often say, how often should I see a psychic? Varies. If we're doing a reading for you and you come back to me six weeks later and say, I I did everything that we talked about and it's great and hear all the things that have changed, where are we going to go now? Sure, I'll read you. But if you come to me once a year and it's always the same questions and I always give you the same answers for where you are, Mm -hmm. after three times, I'm like a good bartender and I cut you off. You're wasting your money and my time. Hmm. What would you say, what's the, the difference would be because what is the difference between what you do and let's say a, just your normal therapist down on uh, 16th Avenue? Okay. Um, I use different tools. Number one, for instance, uh, tarot. Sometimes I will look at a card and it isn't going to be the standard meaning. It's a download from something I couldn't know. Example, read a couple in Kitchener, Ontario, a particular card came up that usually means long-term or mastery. It's a picture of someone working on a church building. And what came out of my mouth is there's a deconsecrated or abandoned church and you need to open up a cafe bakery there. They looked at each other and said, oh yeah, we know which one you're talking about. We've been arguing for two years. Now they had told me nothing. Zip. But that's what I pulled for them. The other thing is I'm a past life specialist. Um, What that means is, look, all of us have had past lives. Nobody is smart enough to get it done in one. But sometimes we trip over things. Mm -hmm. Two examples. There was a woman who came to me at an expo, came into my booth, said, look, I need to know what to do about my son. He's in his 20s. He, He won't do anything without checking with me first. He doesn't want to move far from me. He, he, it's, it's like, he's tethered to me. She said, is there a past life that talks about this? And so I said, okay. And I, I went upstairs in a few seconds and I said, well, okay, what I'm seeing is Utah beach. He's on the beach. Uh, his legs pretty mangled. He's been badly wounded. You're his commanding officer. You grab him and you're pulling him over the dunes. You took some shrapnel too, but you both got off and you lived. And she looks at me for about five seconds and says very quietly, Can you see my rank? I said, yeah, you were a sergeant. She sits back in her chair and she goes, since he's been three years old, he's nicknamed me sergeant. We had no idea where that came from. That's one. For another, a woman has always been fascinated by the Underground Railroad. And she didn't live in the Northeast. You know, she had no visible connection with it. But again, went upstairs got the vision set. All right, I'm seeing you in a small whitewashed room, low ceiling. The gentleman standing there with you, they have to bend their heads to fit in. 
Um, you're kneeling by a rickety iron bed. Looks about 1862 or 63. Based on what you're wearing, it's a gray de- dress with black soutache trim. And in the bed is a very old black woman who's dying. And all of you are grieving because she came so close to getting to Boston, which is where she wanted to go after she escaped. But she was going to die and she wasn't able to make it. And the woman looks at me when I open my eyes, tears streaming down her face saying, I've had that dream repeatedly for 20 minutes and uh, 20 years and I didn't know what it was. That's the kind of thing you cannot explain psychologically. The precision. Now, why can I do that? I think spirit rummages around in our toolbox and sees what we have. There are lots of different things that people do doing psychic work. For instance, there's something called a pendulum. That's a stone or a crystal, and it's on a string or a chain. And they hold it, and supposedly it gives you yes or no answers. But you see, I have a slight benign tremor in one hand. So I'm not sure I would get the right answers. Mm -hmm. So I just don't use it. On the other hand, remember my background, theater major, so I understand characters. Writer, I understand storylines. And I am a history freak. My uh, minor at, at Brown was history. And I married my husband, who was a museum director, because we met at the Rhinebeck Aerodrome, which is that flying museum with real planes. And as he says, there was this gorgeous brunette who knew the difference between a Fokker DR1 and an F1 based on the wing skids, had to marry her. So with all of that, Spirit says, you got the equipment to be a really good past life specialist. Same scene. Someone who doesn't have my background might say to you, I see you. It's a life where you were female and it's a long hat. It's a long skirt and a big hat. It's in front of a ornate building or arch or something. So I know it's old fashioned. I would see the exact same picture and I'd be able to go, all right, hobble skirt, picture hat, that kind of ostrich feather. You're standing in front of the Brandenburg gate. This is probably Berlin in 1911. Which one's going to give you more information? Hmm. Okay. Now, and the, the, how do you, is there something that you practice that you tap into to ensure that you are getting the right information at the right time? And, and again, I'm going back to my, my thinking of how I've seen this play out in movies. So forgive me, but. Oh, no, I love these questions. It it is. It is the thing of like, I, I see the scene, but it may not mean what I think it means just by the look of it, that, that the, that the setting may be accurate, but how does it play into the world and how you move now with that information? And how do you know that you've interpreted that part correctly? Well, the interpretation is joint between myself and the client. The other thing that I remind everybody is even the best of us are only 85% accurate. The only one 100% accurate is God, and he's not doing readings at Psychic Fairs this week. Thank you. Um, When someone comes to me, I don't just pull a past life because it might be interesting. If we were supposed to remember our past lives like that, we would. But if you're a janitor in Des Moines, and you find out that you were Sir Francis Drake winning, you know, in 1588 for Queen Elizabeth in the Armada or whatever, 
you are going to want to spend time looking at who you were, not living at who you are now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we only remember lives if they have meaning. Notice that I gave these two past lives to people because they came to me with a situation. This is what I was given. I put my ego on a shelf. It's off reading a magazine. I'm just through. Okay. Um, Now, when I do a soul plane reading, which is a 12 hour thing that I will do for people with really serious challenges, um, I will channel down two to as many as 10 past lives in detail, but then I'll go back and check. For instance, if I get a past life for someone and it's 1562, but I see them using a cotton gin, cotton gin wasn't invented until the 18th century. Mm -hmm. That whole life gets thrown out. And I go with what I know can be correct. Mm, okay. So you do self-correct yourself and you do, um, I guess, filter your own understanding of like, what am I getting here to ensure that for I'm something like that? Guy. Yes. But if you're with me for a half an hour at a psychic fair, and you have a list of questions like this. I have to go like that. Mm. What I tell people is I, I'm just the tube it comes through. That's what John Holland, a very famous medium says. I might see a rutabaga riding a plaid fire engine. And that's not going to make any sense to me. But if three weeks later, this woman meets a guy and they're starting to date, excuse me, and she's over at his house and she sees a stuffed rutabaga on a stuffed plaid fire engine, ding. So I can't always do the interpretation. Sometimes I just need to hand it to you. And the other thing is, you know, there's, all my good stories are Canada. There was a woman came for a reading and I saw a couple of possible challenges for her, which I told her about. And she gets up from my table and she says, you suck. And she walks away. Okay. Who's the first person in my chair next time I'm up in kitchen door, but her, she sits down. She says, last time I said you sucked. I said, yes, I remember. Because you told me I was going to take in a border and I might want to sell my house. And I thought that was all bull. But then my daughter got pregnant and moved home. And now I'm going to sell my house to raise my grandson. And I still don't like you, but I want to know what else you see. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> okay. All right. I guess the here's a, here's a question on the the business side of it before we yeah. uh, before we transition into into mm-hmm. your books. Um on the on the business side of it, how do you market in a way that stands out amongst everything else? Because there there is a there's a lot of everything out there, right? Yes, there is. So uh, how do you how do you stand out, and what are some of the things that you're you're doing to, I guess pull people away from the edges where their, you know, the credibility may not be there and, and bring in those clients um, and, and market yourself. Well, it's been a 20 year process and that's the subject of my third book. See, I'm really lucky in that because of the background I had in corporate, I can straddle what I call the twin mountains of business acumen and wiki if you look at most psychics, it's, you know, my guides tell me this and I've said it in generations, blah, blah, blah. Not me. 
I'm a New Yorker. I'm in your face. I'm funny. I'm practical. My ego is not huge. As I say, I'm not someone who thinks her aura don't stink. Hmm. And there are ways we're like doctors. All doctors don't have the same bedside manner. Right. You know, there's some doctors at university hospitals that are technically brilliant and have the personality of turnips. And then there are some like the plastic surgeon who worked on me after my double mastectomy in our house. We call her Madame Artiste and Doc Miracle because she is and she makes them. And she was fabulous. So uh, that goes to where people look at us in a psychic care. You don't know any of us from Adam's house cut. What do you do? Well, I tell people they have to be good puppies. First, they have to do their walkies. You come in, you do the circuit, you look at all the booze. You don't necessarily have to talk to anybody. Then what you do is you get paper trained. What that means is we all have flyers or rack cards that tell you a little about what we do. Collect from anybody who looks like you might want to read with them. Sit down, read through, and you're probably going to find three or four that sound interesting. Go back and talk to us if we're free. If we're working, talk to our front people. But remember, we hire our front people to say they love us. My first mm -hmm. front person was the wonderful Laura Spickerman. Laura was my husband's office manager at the museum Monday through Friday, worked for me weekends. You think she's going to dismiss his museum director? Probably not. You want to find the testimonial books on our tables. We all have them and read through. Are we kind? Are we funny? Are we accurate? Do we have specialties, children, dogs, dead people? Would people come back? But the last thing is check in at heart level, guys. You are putting your hard-earned money on the table. If the psychic doesn't feel like they have a brain in their head, they really give a damn about what they're doing, or they're going to give you good information, don't go there no matter how cool the wiki woo looks on the table. And if nobody rings your chimes, leave without a reading. We're a luxury. We are not a necessity like food, like shelter, like a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, was, I always thought about that because – how do you think about the marketing and everything now? And in speaking about the marketing, which is why I brought this up because you have two books. Three. Um, you have three. I'm sorry. So yep. we have three books. The, the one that struck me because I was on the website and mm -hmm. I, I can tell you this phrase that, that really drew me in was living life as a tiny house. Got it. And that's the first book. That's the first book. I, yep. That phrase, and I have an idea what it means of simplifying your life, getting mm -hmm. rid of all of the mess, uh, all of all the, the stuff stupids. we've collected <laughs> over the years. It's yep. just like, you know, you find yourself living in this, because uh, as an aside, my wife and I, we're going to go clean the garage after this. Because there are what ten a years. Day. <laughs> yeah, there are ten years of stuff in the garage that just has mm -hmm. to go, right? right? So that struck a nerve with me, and so I, I wanted to really dive into that book. Give me, let's get the cliff notes about that book. Sure. Um, and it's called "Clean Out Your Life Closet," and the way it was written is I asked. 
clients, I took a survey, what are the things that you keep tripping up on that you always come to me about? And the four things were clarity, adaptability, simplicity, and handling stress. So those are the became the four parts of the book, and each part of the book had four chapters. And what you're talking about, living life as a tiny house, yes, this is a self-help book, but I do not tell you I know everything, do everything that I tell you, and it all gets better. That's crazy. You haven't lived your life. So the way this book is structured, tell you some of the stupid things I've done, maybe talk to you about a client, give you a couple of ideas. But at the end of each chapter, um, I have specific questions that you can only answer based on your own life. So life is a tiny house. What are the questions? How do you view stuff? How do you view your stuff in particular? How does your stuff serve you? Is there stuff that now merely gets in the way? If so, what specific stuff is it and how does it hinder you? Which of the six questions about stuff in the chapter gave you the most insight on your stuff situation? See, you can't go back and say, oh, she said on 22. You have to answer it. But some of the things that I ask, because stuff is everything, it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. If you had a year to live, what would be important to you? What do you find yourself doing or using most often? Do you really need 14 pans or you only use two? What do you surround yourself with that has ceased to matter? You know, if you had a hobby 30 years ago, building model airplanes, and you've got 15 kits in the basement, you know you're never going to touch again. Why are they there? What have you gone unconscious about? Those are the online impulse buys. Those are never checking the pantry before you go grocery shopping. What benefits other people in the house, not just you? You know, everybody needs their own toothbrush. Everybody does not need their own copy of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm. What intangible clutter do you have? Those are the tasks and the relationship and the obligations that waste your time. They don't feed your soul. They don't give you any benefit. And they hip check out of the way the things that really do matter to you. And then I go over how to start simplifying. Life is a tiny house. When you have a tiny house, you don't have room for eight copies of the same book. You have one and people share and it's treasured. Yeah, I... I think that's masterful if you really think about it, because one of the things that I am and I've, I've, I've told my wife this, my, my mother-in-law, her, her husband passed and years and years and decades of things they've accumulated were in the basement and we would go through and we would say, you know, um, you know, you probably need to clean some of this stuff out, but she would never want to let it go. Mm-hmm. And then the basement flooded. And Ow. It, yeah, all of the stuff was destroyed. And she was kind of upset, but we were going through it. And, and I told her, it was like, this bag of clothes, mm-hmm. his these sweaters have been sitting in a hefty bag, stuffed in the closet for nine years not doing anything. And so we finally start cleaning that out. And when we got it cleaned and I had another cousin come in and repair the walls and do everything, 
she went into the basement and she was really happy with what she saw because it was all of the stuff you've been holding on to is now gone. Mm-hmm. And That's you right. never needed it to begin with, but it's just there. And, and I do think a lot of people, that's how that's how we go through life, that some of these things that we've collected, they they actually don't mean anything, but we put meaning in them, you know? So I've always, I've always said to my wife is like, hey, when I go, throw all this stuff away. The only thing I care about is that whoever drinks my wine, they drink it with a good steak. Respect my wine, right? Gotcha. So, you know, my husband and I are very different people. Because my life has been full of change, then I haven't taken much with me. I've got my books, got the stuff in my office, got my clothes, got my cats. It's pretty much it. But my husband has been a collector of historical things and family items. And so he's trying to downsize now and it's harder for him, but we have an 864 square foot house. We have a tiny house. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in your typical Cherry Hill, New Jersey, four bed, two and a half bath. So I have had to learn to get small as they say. Hmm. Okay. Now the, let's talk about the, let me go here. It's going to be a pause here because there was another question here. Mm-hmm. If you're going into a pause, I have one question. Mm-hmm. I'm watching your vocal line and it's showing everything that you're talking about. Mine never moves. Are you sure I'm being recorded? Yes, I can see yours. Good. Thank you. I'm sure you <laughs> I, can cut that little bit out, but I was going, oh my God, all this good talking. It wasn't there. So yeah, no, no, I, 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 I can see it. And in some cases, it depends on the mic. Uh, I did an interview with this one guy, had the greatest microphone in the world. He just sounded like, I mean. Must have been a Yeti. Yep. Yeah, it, it was like, oh, my God. It's like your microphone just sounds great. He was crystal clear. Felt like I was on the, talking with somebody from 60 Minutes or something. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, great. All right. Uh I want to talk about, let's talk about the, I'm going to dive into the, the clarity part. Yep. Um, all right. So I want to dive in into this part about, you mentioned clarity. I want to, I want to get into that because one of the things I found in my life, I'm 51 or 52. I'm not really sure. Um, but at 30, mm-hmm. I thought I had a better understanding of my life and the world and mm-hmm. what was ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And then I spent a decade still wandering. Okay. At 40, I think I figured, I finally figured it out. Right. Right around 40 is like, OK, you know what? I think I got this life thing um, under control here. Cool. OK. So now at 50. I don't know. 
I, I, I've just, I've got to the point, like, I don't know what I know, whatever. It's just like, ah, you know That's what? called wisdom, my friend. Yes, wisdom. it's just like, I have no idea what I know. And what I'm going to do is, if I can't figure it out, uh, I'll just open a bottle of wine and watch football and deal with and it. And numb tomorrow. out. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, but my life is, I, I live a very simple life, but if you have a complex life with a lot of stress, with a lot of issues going on, how do you get to clarity when there's so many things, so many moving pieces? How would you advise someone to get to clarity when there's so many things, so many moving parts? Well, I talk about clarity as a three-legged stool. That's your primary work. That means getting clear on your purpose, getting clear in your relationships, and getting clear with spirit. You got those three, then you can sit on that stool and you can clear out the rest of it. Okay. Um, I'd call it the joy of a clear telescope because we're looking at our life. Are we looking at what we really want? So, you know, the first thing you need to do, frankly, is decide to use it, decide you want to get clear on what's going on. Then you clean the lens which is getting rid of the urgent instead of important. Urgent is, is the screaming duck in your face. You know, Do the laundry, run the errands, play with the cat. You focus your telescope. That's your mindfulness. You don't go numb. Mindfulness is you're in the present moment. You realize you're in the power in the present moment. What do you want to do with it? You aim your telescope. That's getting your mind still. And you adjust the lens. So what's adjusting the lens? You cultivate good habits. You keep yourself and your surroundings clean. You get dressed every day. You know, I know that with a pandemic, it's, you know, no pants Wednesday, get dressed. You turn off the techno tempters, whether it's TV, whether it's Facebook, whether it's TikTok, whatever. You set your schedule. You keep your lists. You learn from other people with focused telescopes. And you stay, oh, you stay away from people who live in Neverland. What's that? Those are the people who say, no, it won't work. It, something I wouldn't do. You'll never make it. They don't help you. Mm-hmm. You know, for them, I give you two magic phrases. Thank you for sharing. You may think that if you wish, then you go do what the hell you need to do. You find your tribe and you avoid the gloom and doom of the world. Look, life is hell in the United States these days. Mm-hmm. We have completely fallen apart and i don't know if we'll ever find a way out certainly not to where we were that america's dead and gone my belief is we will like a phoenix burn the old ideas and resurrect but i'm 66 i may not be here to see it finished What that does is that makes it clear to me, I can't just be a boomer. I have to be an elder. Now, what's the difference? Remember, we boomers were the big bubble in the middle of everything. So a boomer still thinks of life in that sweet spot of 45 to 1980 as the only way America should be. They think that they have a right to tell everyone else what to do. They think their way is the only way. They think that if uh, younger people are not doing everything that they were able to do that there's something wrong with the youngsters that is just heinous it's ridiculous 
the way I see myself as an elder, which is very different, elders realize our time on the stage is leaving. We're coming out of the spotlight. And instead, the next generations are coming up and it's their right to do so in the way they see fit. Now, we do have wisdom and things to share with them. And if you ask us respectfully, we'll tell you. But the responsibility for an elder is also to see those bright lights that will lead in whatever way, whether they're doctors or whether they're intuitives like me, and find them. And you're an elder and they become your apprentice. I've got one. After years of swearing, I would not be a teacher on a one-on-one basis. There is a brilliant young lady around here. Her name is Ula. I'm very close to her family. She's 14. And the depth of empathy and understanding of how people work is astonishing. So she's been my apprentice for about two years. She'll be a better reader than I am by the time she's 25. She is incandescent. So that's where we, she and I work together. And the difference between boomers and elders, universes. Mm. I wish more boomers would realize it's time to be elders in the old tradition. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I, I completely understand what you're saying because I'm Generation X. So I'm mm-hmm. part of the forgotten generation. Um, so it's the boomers, then there's Generation Z or Y, or I'm not sure. I think what it's that is. boomers, Gen X, millennials. Millennials, Gen yes. Z. So yeah. it's the boomers and millennials get all of the attention and Gen, Gen X. Um, but we were the transition and mm-hmm. we are the transition. We're the ones who are trying to raise millennials and you know for the boomers you know we're the ones taking them to dialysis (laughs) so we're taking care of both of them and and we're kind of the forgotten tribe i i think uh but we've seen the world before Mm -hmm. uh, and then the after when we talk about digital world and all of this it's like yes we you know, all the safety features. I tell people it's just like, look, my mother smoked, was smoked in the car with the window raised up and with no seatbelts on. And um, and we go home and play with lawn darts. So mm-hmm. it's like we survived our childhood is, is yep. essentially uh, yep. what that was, is that and now you guys wear helmets and everything. But how does... Uh, now, everything you've said, though, so th- that's one of those transitions I just t- talked about. I was mm-hmm. on one, and I just kind of crossed over. So that I'm going to cut out. Everything that you said, nothing outside of the, the parts of, like, understanding how to tap into past lives, mm-hmm. how to some intuitive things and reading cards... the stereotype of what a psychic is you're completely you have completely broken that vase for me because mm-hmm. i'm not hearing i'm not i'm not hearing 
psychic. I'm hearing someone who's I'm hearing a, a more intuitive therapist, um, I guess more spiritually aligned with the world and and but I guess I'm not hearing that, you know, Doctor Strange and no. it's is so and I think one of the things the question that that people will have um because you will get a lot of skeptics out there but but to be honest with you people are skeptics of therapists i mean Mm -hmm. you know i i'll tell everyone it's just like hey you need therapy and they're like oh what can a therapist tell me it's like quite a bit actually but you should try it out so is there any i guess the question would would be then you described how people should find their therapist. It's just like talking with them, reading up on them and everything. Um, is there kind of like this proving ground for therapists? I mean, how does someone actually become, how does someone actually become a good psychic? I, if, if that's in them, you well, have an apprentice. It's in all of, it is in all of us my friend, we're all wired like the same house plan. The way I explain it is we all have 10 fingers. We can all play chopsticks. Some of us really like the idea. So we learn to read music and we practice scales and we get pretty good. One in 10 million is Elton John. I'm not saying I'm Elton John, but I have spent time practicing. I get information I could not know. You know, other things we haven't touched on is yes, I am a medium. Um, I, simple example, a woman wanted to talk to her father-in-law. The way I do it is I don't just go fishing because I want to get to him fast. So you give me the dog tags, for instance, my father, Jerome Richard Dorkin, who died in 2001 at the age of 80. Notice that tells me nothing about them. Gets me in the energy fast. So she said she wanted to speak to her father-in-law. And all of a sudden I find myself miming a pool cue. He taught her how to play pool. A woman wanted to speak to her grandfather. All of a sudden, I feel myself saluting. Now, Americans salute with a palm down. Brits and Canadians salute with a palm up. Mm -hmm. She had apparently just graduated from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Academy, and her grandfather was acknowledging that, which she hadn't told me. So you see, I may not know why I'm doing this, but if you can read it, fine. Um, Sometimes I will actually get verbal stuff. Um, There was a woman, this was in York, Pennsylvania. She had no accent. She wanted to speak to her husband who had died six months before. She didn't tell me, and he didn't have a name like Beauregard Buford. It was just a normal name. And all of a sudden I feel my hands go out in this big, you know, all encompassing hug and my head twilts and go, hey, baby. That's how he walked in the house every night after work. Now that's psychic. That's not intuitive, like trying to suss her out. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say it isn't me. I am just the tool. This is in service to humanity, baby. That's it. Has there ever been a moment then that has frightened you? Have you ever seen anything that has frightened you to where you did not want to tell 
the person standing in front of you what was what you were seeing, what you were feeling? No, no. And that doesn't necessarily mean I don't tell them anything bad. Um, one of the cardinal rules, cardinal rules, you must never tell someone when they're going to die because that, set, that gets them to start thinking about it and bringing it in for reality. I have broken that rule only once in my entire life, and it was this past May. There was a woman that I knew who had lymphoma. She knew she was terminal. She had things she had to do before she died, one of which was making sure that the seven cats that she owned had good, loving homes. And she called me and she said, I have a very awkward question and maybe it's unfair to ask. I said, Mary, go ahead. She said, I need to know how long I've got when I'm likely to die. And because I knew her background and because it was lymphoma and she was going to die, I, at that point said, I'm seeing early fall, very early fall. She died a week ago, but everything she had needed to do because she had that date in her mind Mm -hmm. got done. But that, you know, she was the exception that proves the rule. Um, I saw a gray area once in a guy's chest and I didn't want to see what it was. I just said, you know, see a little something funky in the chest. Go get an x-ray. That's all I did. Five years later, his wife comes back. She's now a widow. She says, I cannot thank you enough for what you saw in telling us to go see a doctor. It was the very beginning of ALS. That's Lou Gehrig's mm -hmm. disease. Right. And because we caught it so early, we had four good years. Yes, he lost his ability to walk and mostly to talk, but we did so much we would have missed. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to say, oh, it's ALS, you're going to die in four years. For one thing, I'm a hypochondriac raised in a medical family. So I don't want to tell you what you've got. The other one, remember, we could be 85% accurate. Right. What if I tell you wrong? But if I see something, I'll suggest you go to a doctor, a lawyer, a financial advisor. Right. Okay. Okay. So it's something like that. All right. So this is going to be the worst question ever. Um, but this is the worst question ever, but the reality of it is, is that if there's the spirits that are out there, how, I guess the transitioning these, these navigating these paths into, you know, life and death and everything, mm -hmm. um, what is stopping this, some of the the evilness in the world from, you know, I guess just coming through someone and just, um, I, is that a, is that a bad question? I don't, I no, guess I'm it's wondering, not. it's just like there's these doorways, there's these doorways and these avenues that people can, can traverse. And mm -hmm. I'm guess, I'm guess wondering, it's like, if you can go there, what's stopping other things from coming here? And now I'm into some movie types. Um, Who says they fiction. want to? If you lived in a tiny house and all of a sudden you had a mansion and a jet plane, would you want to go back to the tiny house? No. Hmm. 
you know, and the other thing is, why can we not totally understand everything on the other side? Would you expect to take an ant into a calculus class and start teaching? No, ant doesn't have the brain. We don't have the capacity. We don't. Our souls are so much huger than we are. A tiny bit of it comes down and animates these little bitty bodies. Um, and you know that goes back to the idea: do we or do we have reincarnation, or like the Bible says, do we only live once? The answer is both. The soul comes back again and again and again. Corby gets one shot. There will never be this particular recipe down here again. Mm-hmm. When I cross over, it gets hung up in the closet. All the things that are good about me, the compassion, the curiosity, the willingness to be of service, that's the soul. Um, let's take my father. Brilliant doctor, again, compassionate curious, spiritual, all of that was the soul. His anxiety, depression, and hypochondria, that was the personality, and that just dissolves. So, and when people have a hard time understanding it, I use the example of Matt Smith, the actor. Matt was the 11th Doctor Who. Goofy Mm -hmm. and brilliant, and yeah, yeah, he was my doctor. But when he was done being Doctor Who, he went and played Prince Philip in The Crown, the first two series. Mm -hmm. Totally different characters both brought to life by the same person. The characters are separate reincarnations. Matt Smith is like the soul. Oh. See, that makes sense. Thank you. Oh, that that makes sense. Okay, well, I guess the question, the last, the two final questions here. Okay. Um, one, what is your, what would be your, I guess your, your overarching advice to people. One, if they're looking for someone in a psychic psychic to talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, And two, maybe just an overarching lesson you have about living life. Because I think the tiny house lesson is, for me, that resonated. Um, everything Everything you said about that, that resonated with me. Um, but what what else would you say um, for someone who right now needs to hear something and they're kind of not sure of their path or where to go? Um, what would you tell them? All right. The first question is the simplest. How to make sure you find a real psychic. That is why I wrote The Psychic Yellow Brick Road, How to Find the Real Wizards and Avoid the Flying Monkeys. It goes through all of the things that you need to know, how to stay safe, what to look for, when to run, what we can and cannot do. And the book was not written for you to come to the conclusion, oh, I have to go see Corby. I don't care if you never see me. If this book keeps you safe and helps you use this information well, I did my job. Now, the other one was how to, basically you're saying how to live the examined life. Mm -hmm. I have gone through three bouts of breast cancer, two divorces, the death of all three of my parents, two bios and a stepmother I adore. My life has has been roller coaster, no breaks. You got to live life in a way like a ballerina. A ballerina, when she's pirouetting, she finds that spot of focus on the wall and she keeps looking at it. And when she's gonna break her neck, she whips her head around and looks at it again. That keeps her in balance. Find that sentence of passion. Your sentence of passion is the vapor trail you leave behind in every encounter. 
When you go skidding into heaven on bald tires and fumes in the tank and God hands you a beer and says, so you get to say, I did this. Isn't it cool? My sentence of passion is cross the bridge from fear to fearlessness and fly. When I can take somebody from point A to point B, when they thought they couldn't make it, whack them on their shoulders, say, here are your wings. You don't need a flight plane now. Yeah, I am living my bliss. And I don't let anything stand in the way of that. You know, I'm never going to live the life I had as an upper middle class, lower upper class kid of a nice Jewish doctor. Never going to have that money. Never going to have those experiences. But I'm a different person. I acknowledge who I am. I know what's important to me. And I shape my life around that as long as it puts some good into the world. You cannot leave here without teaching something to someone. And you cannot leave here well, not having made the world a little bit better. And that doesn't mean that you have to make it world peace. If you end up helping Catholic charities, if you end up working with Magnificat Cat Rescue and Rehoming, if you end up helping refugees find furniture for their apartment, teaching them English, it may not change the world as a whole, but you have moved your energy forward and said to the universe, this is what I believe in. That's how you do it. Thank you, Corby. And with that, you get the last word. Um, I've had a wonderful time. You can find me at CorbyMitlide.com. You can find lots of interesting things on YouTube at Corby Mitlide. You can find me on Facebook at Fire Through Spirit. And you're all welcome. Thanks for listening to the show. Please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. That helps get rankings and make it easier for people to find the show. Check out the links in the notes. Also, leave a comment. Let us know what part of the show you enjoyed and what was most impactful. Share this episode with your network and help us spread the word about the podcast. As always, you can contact me at thequickstartcreative at gmail.com. Thanks for your time and make it a great day.